the scripture we're going to be focusing on this morning is from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll start our reading at verse 16 and read through chapter 12, verse 10. 2 Corinthians 11, begin at verse 16 through chapter 12, verse 10. Uh, I don't know if you uh, need time to look that up in your Bibles or if it will show up here on the screen, but this passage needs a little bit of introduction. Uh, the Apostle Paul has had a relationship with the Corinthian church, was a, which was a bit troubled. Uh, as you may know, if you are a student of Scripture, uh, the Corinthian church was a church that had allowed a great deal of sin to be tolerated. So the Apostle Paul had to write them a fairly sharp letter correcting all those errors. And then they also had allowed false teachers uh, into the church, teachers uh, who actually had mistreated the church in various ways. Paul will allude to that in the text that we read this morning. And then, of course, because of that, Paul had experienced rejection from this church, so he feels the need to defend himself and defend his ministry. Now, all of that can sound, you know, very churchy, but as he draws this passage to a conclusion, he gives us a principle which is so important, not only in the relationship of pastors and churches, but in each one of our lives as we look at ourselves as servants of God and as we think about what it is in our lives that can either be a help or a hindrance in that service to God. So this is the famous passage about the thorn in the flesh, which we've all heard of. And so let's read that from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 16. Paul says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. All these other leaders had boasted about how great they were. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face, to my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. And toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness." The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. I must go on boasting. 
Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things which cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we ponder this morning this great paradox of the Christian life, that it is through our weaknesses that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ becomes evident in us, we pray that we may hear these words, and we pray that we may reflect on our own lives in the light of them, and that we may seek to serve you even when we feel unworthy, and when, even when we feel like we don't have the abilities that we ought to have. Help us to realize that your power is what matters in making ourselves available to you in faith so that the grace of Jesus can work through us is what's most important. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Americans love a success story. And America is where success stories happen. In fact, this is the place where people come, if they are ordinary people, in order to have success stories happen to them. In many countries of the world, the obstacles to success are overwhelming. And if you're not born in the right family, and if you don't have the right friends or connections, it's very hard to get rich, very hard to get famous, in fact, very hard to accomplish almost anything. But in America, people without family connections or friends in high places have risen to great fame and wealth and power. Now, the list of American success stories is too long to list, but I thought I would mention three people that offer some perspective on these American stories of success. And the, the people I've chosen are Michael Jordan, Martha Stewart, and Billy Graham. Now, you might say, boy, you're showing your age by choosing those three. But I am actually aware that there are uh, more recent success stories that I could have chosen to focus on. People, for example, like Elaine Gu or Elon Musk or Joel Osteen. But I've chosen these three, Michael Jordan, Martha Stewart, and Billy Graham, for a reason. And that is that time gives us perspective on success. And when we can see the entire trajectory of a person's life, sometimes what we thought was, you know, the enchanted life, 
the person who had it all ends up not having as much as what we thought. Michael Jordan, I'm sure most, if not all of you, remember him or have heard of him. He was one of the most incredible international sports phenomenons that ever lived. Five national titles with the Chicago Bulls, an international advertising icon. But then if you follow the story of his life, you know that his vulnerabilities begin to show. His father was murdered near Lumberton, North Carolina, a town which you probably haven't heard of, but I always heard the name out of my mother's mouth because she grew up right near there. Then Jordan made a failed attempt to transition to baseball as he worked through the depression that hit him following his father's death. wasn't too long after that that his wife humiliated him by threatening to divorce him, and then she eventually did. And then he attempted to become a successful team owner, and he didn't. So that is the life of Michael Jordan. Martha Stewart was the diva of decorating. She was the kind of person who taught women how to turn sow's ears into silk purses. Her name and face were a household item in America for a long time. She seemed to be superwoman, combining, you know, a successful career with all of the details of homemaking. But then her human vulnerability began to show. Her husband ran off with another woman. She cut a great advertising deal with Kmart, and Kmart went bankrupt, and then she was convicted of insider trading and sent to prison. Billy Graham, he was a spiritual leader recognized around the world. During the 20th century, he led this uh, amazing re revitalization of Christianity called the Evangelical Movement. And he preached to millions of people around the world. When I was a missionary's kid in South America, my dad used to run book tables at Billy Graham campaigns that were held down there. But then Billy Graham's vulnerability begins to show. This man who had prayed with presidents and often sought out uh, ways to influence people in power uh, was deeply shamed to discover that one of these men was actually abusing his power. And then his wife wrote a book entitled It's My Turn, in which she exposed his human vulnerability. She spoke of how difficult it was to raise her children by herself. And later, son Franklin Graham also publicly acknowledged that his father was not there for him as he was growing up. And then as his life drew to a close, Graham, as uh, so many, suffered from illness, a serious illness, in his case, Parkinson's disease. So what do all these stories teach us about worldly success? Well, they teach us that none of us, no matter how successful we may be in this world, is exempt from failure, from weakness or illness. And I think we need to be a little careful here because we shouldn't then have this sour grapes attitude about success, say, well, you know, it isn't anything you should ever strive for. We shouldn't gloat over the failures of the successful like envious readers of tabloids. But the fleeting nature of worldly success ought to do something else for us. It ought to make us pay attention to biblical wisdom. I think all of us have felt twinges of envy when we see someone who seems to have it all. 
And we can think that we ourselves, if we have it all, or had it all, that we would be perfectly happy. But life teaches us, as these stories I've just related to you, that nobody has it all. Not world-class athletes and businessmen, not beautiful and successful women, not even internationally respected religious leaders. Nobody has it all. Well, the Apostle Paul, a man who probably has influenced more people down through history than any other through his writings of his epistles, was a man who was suffering at the time that he wrote the letter in front of us. He was suffering from disrespect. He was being disrespected by the Corinthians. And this disrespect made him defensive. And so what he does is point out all the symbols of his success that he had accumulated as an apostle of Christ. And of course, he says to brag in this way is insanity. He says, I'm talking like a madman. But nobody could claim a more respectable religious pedigree than Paul. No one could claim greater suffering or greater spiritual experiences as a follower of Jesus Christ. What the Apostle Paul was saying here is, you know, is that any, if anyone could claim the role of model Christian, I think that I could do that. But even Paul, a person who measured his success by the standards of Christian virtue, wasn't perfectly happy. Something in his life was wrong. It was so bad he calls it a messenger of Satan to harass me. The Greek word for harass that Paul uses here is kolophizo, and it's a very strong word. It's a word the Bible uses to describe the abuse that the soldiers heaped on Jesus when they said to him, uh, prophesied to us, Christ, who hit you? It's a, a word that means to, pee, uh, to, uh, to punch or to beat brutally. And so Paul had something in his life that made him feel beat up. And then he uses another word, the Greek word skolops, which means thorn. And this word also has some interesting associations. On the one hand, it, it could be an extreme word, one that referred to a stake on which people put the head of an enemy that they had cut off. But this word is used in Aesop's fables to mean splinter. And so one writer suggests that the Apostle Paul chooses this word deliberately because it combines the trivial with the painful, scallops. And of course, in our text, it's rendered not as splinter, but as thorn. In contrast to the stauros, the cross of Christ, what Paul is speaking about here is just a scallops, a splinter, a little thorn. But this thorn inflicted such intense distress on Paul's life that he calls it a beating. He calls it a colophizo. Now, all of us, if we think about our lives and our experience, can probably come up with something that we would say, that is a thorn. That is a thorn in the flesh. That's one of those nasty splinters that even though it's small, you know, every time I touch my finger, I can feel it, and it bothers me. Our thorns are inferior to Christ's cross, but they create...
create misery. Now, why are these thorns given to us? That's what Paul is exploring in this text. Well, he tells us that because having the power and grace of God work in our lives is such an amazing thing, being transformed into new creatures in Christ is such an amazing thing, the gifts of, that God gives to his people are such an amazing thing that we could all be tempted to become very proud. Success, even if it's spiritual success, is something that can tempt people to pride. Now, the world may not admire the success that Christians yearn for, the kinds of things that Paul mentions in this text, but that doesn't make them immune to pride when they obtain these things. Even suffering for Christ, which Paul lays out here as, you know, one of his badges of honor, is something that Christians may take pride in, but we may think, well, you know, worldly people would laugh at that. I would encourage you to remember, though, that a lot of people, as they have climbed the ladder to success, have had to suffer, and often once they get successful, they like to brag about all the hardships that they endured in order to get there. So maybe this isn't all that unusual. And so there are similarities between worldly and spiritual achievement. But for the Christian disciple, we must not measure success as the world does. And in fact, the Apostle Paul says that he's foolish to open his trophy case in the way that he's doing in this chapter. He may have a great spiritual pedigree. He may have endured great suffering for Christ. He may have expressed profound love to others. He may have shown amazing physical stamina. But a true Christian doesn't seek to impress people with his own achievements. A true Christian ought to seek to bring to people's attention the power of the grace of God that makes all this possible. True Christians credit God's grace, not their own fortitude for all that happens in their life, for their perseverance and their love and their ability to suffer. I was reading uh, the, uh, a little later in this uh, book of 1 Corinthians where Paul himself states that very clearly. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul puts the focus on God's work in that verse he says, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. So, God's grace. God's grace to us in Christ. That's finally what we want people to see when they look at our lives. We don't want them to look at us and say, oh, you know, what an incredible Christian you are. We want them to look at us and say, what an amazing Savior Christ is. And to that end, in order to help accomplish that purpose, God gives Paul something that is going to be so bothersome and such an obvious weakness in his life that he constantly has to return to God for grace. Now, all down through history, Christians have wanted to know what is the specific ailment that the Apostle Paul 
was dealing with. We're a bit like Tom Sawyer's friends, if you're familiar with that story, where he was charging them to look at his infected toe. All of us want to know, you know, what was this infected toe of Paul's? There have been all kinds of guesses. In our time, people have said, well, it was probably a, an emotional disability, because those are some of the things that we focus on now. Others say, no, a physical disability, maybe a headache, eye trouble, leprosy, malaria, a speech impediment. Others say, no, it was more of a relational thing. It had to do with a temptation to hate or to covet. Or maybe it was the opposition of enemies that just didn't go away. That was the thorn. Now, we don't know what ailed Paul, and that's probably good. A commentator on this text says, define the thorn, and any believer lacking that particular affliction would dismiss Paul's experience as remote from his own. And so the Bible, by leaving this a mystery, helps us focus on the principle. We all have in our life, as followers of Christ, something, some weakness, some struggle, that lasts all our life long, and that constantly makes us return to God for grace. Reminds us we are mortal, reminds us it's not about us, but about the power of God that rests upon us. That same person who I just read from, who says to find a thorn, and if you don't have it, you just dismiss it, dismiss it uh, as irrelevant here, He says, is there a single servant of Christ who cannot point to some thorn in the flesh, visible or private, physical or psychological, from which he has prayed to be released, but which has been given him by God to keep him humble and therefore fruitful in his service? All of us, every single believer in Jesus Christ, must learn that weaknesses are given to us in order to open our hearts to God's grace. Instead of hoping for the picture-perfect life, we should pay attention to how mature Christians have always dealt with difficulty. In his book, Authentic Faith, Gary Thomas points out that Scripture stresses waiting on the Lord And he says, unconquered weaknesses, unhealed diseases, unresolved tensions force us to wait upon the Lord. By nature, we're impatient, especially if we're achievement-oriented. We want to get rid of these weaknesses so we can get on with the effort to fill our trophy case. But that isn't what God wants to do in our lives. He wants us to constantly remind us that we are what we are by his grace. And every day we depend on his grace in order to continue to be and become what he wants. Christians of previous generations have a lot to teach us about living with weakness and disability. There was a a pastor in New England by the name of Richard Baxter, a prominent Puritan, and we're told that He wrote one of his most famous works while a grotesquely large tumor protruded from his body. G.K. Chesterton, a famous Christian writer in Britain, D.L. Moody, the famous American evangelist, both of them were seriously overweight. Teresa 
of Avila, who's known for her devotional writings, suffered intense migraines for many years. Martin Luther died a difficult death after suffering a long string of illnesses. And we could go on and on like that with all different prominent personalities in Christian history. Almost all of them dealt with something in their life with which they struggled. And what do these difficulties do? They provide an opportunity for prayer, for drawing near to God. Isn't that what we hear the Apostle Paul say? He was driven to his knees by this. He says, three times I prayed that this thorn would be removed. An ancient preacher by the name of Chrysostom said, three times, in this context means repeatedly. Paul prayed repeatedly for deliverance. But we know what God's answer was to him. And that was that my grace is sufficient for you in your weakness. What Paul received in answer to his prayer was not healing, but grace. He received not relief from his frustrations, but the reminder that God uses our frustrations in order to turn our eyes to him and his power once again. Paul's life was useful to God just as it was. He didn't need to be some ideal or perfect person, either personally or professionally, in order for God to be able to use his life. And when we feel that we can do things ourselves, we feel less need for God. When we're too impressive, people praise us instead of praising God. So the point of these thorns in the flesh, these weaknesses that God allows to remain in our lives, are always to turn us back to him so we depend on him. St. Augustine who struggled with his share of thorns and finally died of a wasting disease, wrote these insightful words. He says, Not everyone who spares is a friend, and not, nor is everyone who strikes an enemy. Love mingled with severity is better than deceit with indulgence. The one who confines the madman as well as the one who rouses the lethargic is troublesome to both, yet loves both. Who could love us more than God does? Yet he continually teaches us sweetly as well as frightening us for our own good. God often adds the most stinging medicine of trouble to the gentle remedies with which he comforts us. He tries the patriarchs, even the good and devout ones, by famine. He chastises a stubborn people with heavier punishments. He does not take away from the apostle the sting of the flesh, though asked three times so as to perfect strength and weakness." what looks like an obstacle to God's grace in our life or an obstacle to his work is actually a channel for his grace. And so that's why Paul says at the end of our passage, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Then he says it more strongly, that is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. And then he brings this great paradox of the Christian life to a crescendo by saying, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So weaknesses can become a channel for God's grace in our life. But for that to happen, we have to humbly yield the way that God is working 
through these things that we would just rather get rid of. And what this will result in is that finally, when it comes to giving credit for all that's accomplished through us, it will be God who gets the praise. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word from 1 Corinthians. We thank you that this difficult situation in the life of the Apostle Paul and the Corinthian church has served to give us this great principle for Christian living. So we pray that if we are struggling with a weakness in our life, that you would teach us to rely ever more on you and to use this weakness in order to bring glory to your name. All this we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.